Debate number two is about to go down in just a couple hours, and the field has been whittled down to lucky number seven. I've got Will Kane on deck to break down the elephants in the room and more. The show starts now. Tonight is the second GOP primary debate taking place in Gavin Newsom's California. Luckily, it'll be held at the Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley and not Santa Monica or Venice Beach or San Francisco because we wouldn't want our candidates stepping over tents and feces and needles on their way to the stage. Though I would suggest it for the Democratic debates that are never going to happen as it fits their aesthetic and their third world vibe they like to bring to cities and towns nationwide. But luckily, there are seven candidates and a no-show that are hoping to stop that dumpster fire from spreading, hoping to stop the bleeding, so to speak. And speaking of an infestation, well, you'll be comforted to know that while Democrats don't recognize the invasion at our southern border, the invaders, well, they do. They are so comfortable and cozy here in the country they have no right to be in that they are planting their native flag on our soil. <laughs> One small step for them, one giant leap off the freaking cliff for us. And speaking of big leaps and giant cliffs, our own president can't even make it up and down his kitty stairs without stumbling. Yes, Operation Don't Let Biden Fall is off to a great start. And shoot, you know, if I was an illegal, I'd plant a damn flag on U.S. soil too, because why not? Now is certainly the time. Our president will soon be using a squatty potty to board Air Force One. I mean, at this point, maybe we should just hand the U.S. back to the British or even Harry and Meghan, for God's sake, and just hope for the best. Joining me now to help find the silver lining in it all is Fox News host, Will Kane. All right, Will, I'm pretty excited for the second debate, but I got to be honest with you, the thing I'm probably most excited about is seeing Stuart Varney ask questions. I feel like Stuart is so underrated at Fox News and Fox Business. I cannot wait to hear his accent tonight. I'm so happy for Stuart's big moment. Are you feeling the same excitement that I am about Stuart Varney? It's a weird obsession, but it's my obsession. You're not alone. Big, big fan of Stuart Varney. And what I like is you've got this like prim and proper business analyst with an English accent that spends his weekends apparently in overalls on a farm two hours outside of New York City. Somewhere deep buried inside that sartorial and educated Englishman is just a good old boy farmer. So I'm a big fan of Stuart Varney, but Tommy, I don't envy the job. I think it's really difficult. And I actually talked to Stuart about it this past weekend. I said, how are you going to do this? Because nobody watches to see an interview. Right. They don't watch to see the moderator versus the candidate. They see they watch to see the candidate versus the candidate, a debate. But he's also got to maintain order. And so it's not pure chaos and bickering. So it's a difficult job to moderate a debate. I think it is. I think that they'll listen to Stewart, though. I mean, along with Dana Perino, of course, and then the Univision uh, moderator. I just think they're going to listen to Stewart because that English accent, I think it just it does something to people. But let's talk about the debate tonight. I'm excited about this one. I still think it's a giant miscalculation for Trump not to show up. I understood why he didn't go to the first one, because he had all the news coverage about his indictments and his mugshot, and that took up all the air in the room anyway. 
But I don't know if you're sensing the same thing I am. Donald Trump really hasn't been consuming the headlines like he was during indictments one through four in the mugshot. And I think at some point he's going to jump in and he's going to have to debate. He's going to have to do something with the other candidates. Or I fear that these bumps he's been getting from all the witch hunts, I think that at some point... That's not going to work so well anymore. It's not going to give him the bump that it's been giving him. And he's going to have to show up and, and face Ron DeSantis, really. I'll tell you what I think that point may be if that point ever arrives. I'm going to use a sports analogy, if I might, Tommy. This past weekend, Colorado and Deion Sanders' team got absolutely thumped by Oregon. And in the postgame conference, Dan Lanning, the head coach of Oregon, said, we're about substance, men, not clicks. We're about substance, not hype. I think to some extent, Tommy, all of those headlines and news coverage amount to hype when the actual substance is the scoreboard. And almost every poll has Donald Trump up massively over Ron DeSantis, 30, 40 points over Ron DeSantis. I think Donald Trump is nothing if not practical and strategic. He is a negotiator. He he is a businessman who looks at a deal and says, Where's the middle ground or where's the negotiation for us to come out of this with a win? And when I think that he looks at the Republican primary right now, he doesn't see a win in debating DeSantis or Vivek or Mike Pence. He's already dominating them. So what's the point in him getting on stage and going toe to toe? He has nothing to gain. But to your point, if there is ever a point that arrives for him to get on the stage, and debate, it will be if his numbers don't reflect that substance, if they, if he needs that hype, if he needs something to re-energize his numbers. But I don't think we were even close, Tommy, to that point. We might not be, but, well, I got to be honest with you. I see the polls as you see the polls, but we've seen a lot of polls, including the one in 2016 that told us the day of the election that Hillary was going to be our president. So I believe that he is ahead in the polls, but I actually don't think he is as far as, as ahead in the Republican primary as those polls would suggest. I just don't. And we already know that his game in Iowa might not be that strong. He doesn't have a lot of operational control there. He's not showing up on a day-to-day -day basis like some of the others are. You see Nikki Haley making big gains in Iowa. Not that I believe she has a chance, but those are things to me that signify that without the mug shots and without really stirring up the, the mega crowd, he's going to need something else there. Because to my knowledge, he hasn't really been talking a lot about what he's going to do for the country. He talks a lot about being a, the subject of a witch hunt. He talks a lot about how great he did in years past, and he talks about how he'll fix everything. But I haven't really seen him put out new plans that he's going to address the world as it is today and not as it was in 2017 or 2020. And I do think there are going to be some Republicans that are a little tired of the narcissism of him just thinking this should be given to him. And I think it's going to cause some of them, especially if Ron DeSantis performs well, to turn their head and maybe start looking at Ron DeSantis a little more seriously. Okay, well, I, I can't debate you on some of those points because I think some of what you have to say is true or irrefutable. So what I mean by that is this. I'm neither pro-Trump nor pro-DeSantis. I actually think both men would make very good presidents of the United States. I'm not anti-Trump and I'm not anti-DeSantis. Um, so I tell you this coming from a perspective of just trying to analyze the outcome. And what you say about polls and the history of polls and Trump's ground game in Iowa is irrefutably true. You're right, Tommy. I mean, there's no reason for me to put any real trust in polls. And I know it's true that Donald Trump isn't 
isn't putting the traditional way of winning Iowa into place. He's banking on the ability to show up and commandeer big crowds and rallies and that translating into a, a primary election. But you may be very well right that that's not going to work. I simply can't refute it because I don't know. As to whether or not um, I think he's put forward a plan or a vision for America, I think you have two men that are very different in some ways and similar in others. Look, Ron DeSantis has, honestly, and I'll use this word again, an irrefutably good track record as governor of Florida, no matter what it is said. People lived through Florida, through COVID in Florida, and he put into place incredible policies that showed leadership. I think he's done the same to the extent that he has power on illegal immigration and education in Florida. Donald Trump's case, and that's the case for Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump's case, and we're talking about simply on policy now, would you make a good president? Donald Trump's case is based upon history and experience. I do think, Tommy, he's given us some idea of what he would do on immigration, what he would do on the economy, and what he would do when it comes to the war in Ukraine, all very much within the powers of the presidency. And we have the history of his presidency when it comes to the economy to suggest he has put forward solutions. But he does like to talk about himself, and he does get preoccupied with the very important, I would say, very important in symbolic attacks on Donald Trump. So I think they have two different cases to make. Interestingly, though, I think they're very similar in their philosophy and how they would govern the United States of America. I do, too, in some ways, not all. Again, um, I think Trump needs to answer for his handling of COVID. I don't think he's yet to really answer it or be pressed on it. You know, it's much different when you sit down with a news anchor or you sit down with even a political pundit like a Megyn Kelly and you answer for it. And when you stand on a stage next to Ron DeSantis and you actually have to answer for it, because I think that puts him in a much different position. There are a lot of Republicans out there that do not like the way that he handled COVID, that do not like the way that he pushed the jab. And I think that as they're trying to make COVID a thing again, it's important to ask him, would he push two weeks to flatten the curve again? I think he needs to answer that once and for all, instead of just saying, I handled COVID so fantastically. Well, newsflash, you didn't, because you locked us down, you allowed us to be locked down, and you put Fauci on a pedestal he never deserved to be on. So that's what bothers me on that. But I, some- can I just say, Tommy, I, I again, I, I totally respect where you're coming from and think the questions you're asking are fair. Here would be my question in turn for you. And I also like how you say it should come to him. It should come to him through the presence of Ron DeSantis. So this will help us turn to talk about tonight as well. Um, I'll give you another example. I'm a big fan as well, personally and and philosophically, of Vivek Ramaswamy. But I know that Vivek has many, many things in his past, both in his business and in statements and positions he's held in his past that deserve to be challenged. And I would challenge Vivek. And he's been on my podcast program, the Will Kane program, many times. And the next time he comes on, and I think Vivek will be up for it. He has an answer for almost everything. I think he will address those questions. But I was disappointed, Tommy, that Ron DeSantis didn't challenge Vivek Ramaswamy in that first debate. And I didn't think DeSantis did a good job of challenging much of anybody in that debate. And I wonder, would he do that if Donald Trump were on that stage? And by the way, nobody's done that well with Donald Trump to this point. I mean, you know, he's Alabama from 2010 to 2000, you know, 18, 19, like very rarely does he get beat on a debate stage. So I just don't know. And I'll be watching tonight to see if Ron DeSantis can do that while still trying to retain some charm 
and charisma challenge Vivek or challenge Mike Pence. Until I see that, I'm not sure he'd have any ability to do that to Donald Trump. Yeah, you might be right. I think that's why we need to see it. We need to see the showdown. So I, I want to see that tonight. Uh, honestly, though, I think that everybody is going to be watching Ron DeSantis' performance, but also last time it was the beat up of Vivek, and I think everybody thought DeSantis was going to be the one that they all targeted, and it really wasn't. It seemed like Vivek was the thorn in everybody's side because he was like the proxy Trump there. Um, so I think that that's probably part of it. But let's talk a little bit about Nikki Haley. So first debate, I thought she answered the abortion question fantastically. I think that that's why she gained a lot of support, because she's one of the only candidates that's been honest about it. But then it, she talked about her love affair with funding Ukraine in perpetuity, and that's where she lost me. Do you think that uh, tonight is going to be another big moment for her that can move the needle and maybe make her a contender in this? Well, I think... Look, I always try to separate myself from the average voter. There's what I believe and who I am and then who I think the average voter might be. There's the principle that I want to fight for, the philosophy to which I've dedicated my intellectual and my moral and spiritual life. And then there's the dirty, dirty uh, practicality of politics. And I think that as much as Nikki Haley does not reflect for me, many of my principles and philosophy, I can acknowledge that somehow she does resonate with the average voter in a way that I wouldn't have anticipated and is surprising in some of the polls and the results from the first debate. You know, I've challenged Nikki. Nikki was on um, primetime with me when I was guest hosting, and I asked her, for example, about the Bubba Wallace affair. <laughs> you know, Tommy, and I was in sports and you were in politics, and I'm, 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 my memory isn't crystal, but um, I'm, I'm pretty confident in who you are, Tommy Lahren. I'm imagining you were on the right side of the debate over what happened with Bubba Wallace, but Nikki Haley was not. And she said things that accepted a fundamental untruth put forward by the media. And I challenged her on it because it shows the instincts of leadership, right? right. Who are you? Are you just going to go with the flow because everybody says you have to say this to be accepted by everyone that you're not a racist? Or are you simply going to tell the truth? And I challenged Nikki on that. And she did express regrets. She did express regrets about the position that she took. But it leaves for me questions about who she is as a leader. But still, I can see. Even on abortion, you brought up abortion. It doesn't reflect where I am on abortion. I'm pro-life from the from the point of conception. But I also recognize the average voter is not there. And Nikki threaded that needle to your point on what she said about whether or not you should be a federal ban or states should handle it and so forth. And so what I'll tell you is what I'm what I'm leading up to is while Nikki isn't for Will Kane, there the average voter out there does seem to like what she has to offer more than me for the US. Maybe in a general, I could see it, but I don't see her popping much more in the Republican primary. I just don't. I think that she could do well tonight and get a couple points here and there, but I, I still don't think she's going to do anything seismic enough to make her a real contender. Um, she kind of reminds me in some ways, like maybe a, a Ted Cruz, the way that she's performing. Obviously, he did very well. I'm not sure where she's going to land. She's nice to have on the stage. I appreciate her presence on the stage because I, I do think that Having the woman on the stage that kind of held everybody accountable in some ways in the last time, I thought that was good. But I think that she's- You know, from a practical and strategic standpoint, though, look, I don't think anybody has a shot outside of Donald Trump. And and again, this is just the analysis, not my personal like pom-pom waving, um, you know, 
outcome that, that I am sitting here cheerleading is I like Ron DeSantis, but I'm not sure Ron DeSantis has a more clear path to victory than does Nikki Haley. Ron DeSantis's numbers have consistently gone in the wrong direction. He hasn't really. Now, you made a good point earlier. We'll see what happens on the ground in Iowa on a state by state basis. But DeSantis's numbers have gone the wrong way where Haley's, while it, well, it's been minimal to your point, Tommy, have gone in the right way. They're going up. DeSantis is going down. And I think it's a very legitimate question as someone, again, to say for the third time who likes Ron DeSantis, I think he has to be careful about figuring out a way to be authentically him in a charming way or his problem isn't 2024. His problem will be 2028. Mm. I still think that things are going to change, as you mentioned, the state by state. I think it's going to be a lot different. Maybe it's because I'm from the Midwest and I saw the real enthusiasm for Trump in 2016 amongst people like me that are from small states and small towns all coming together. And I saw that spark. But maybe just because I kind of get a sense of the people back home that love Trump, but they're just kind of sick of the circus. And that's kind of how small town Midwest people are. And I think they look at Ron DeSantis and the fact that he's been showing up. And I think that means something to them. Showing up and not thinking that you're above the race. That means something to the forgotten Americans that Trump recognized in 2016. So I want to wait and see on that one. But, you know, again, my biggest thing is this. Do you think, though, in your personal perspective and just your analysis, do you think mm -hmm. that Donald Trump in a general election can win Georgia? can win Wisconsin, can win Nevada, can win Arizona, because I have yes. serious concerns that he can do that. Yes, I do. And I, that doesn't mean I think your concerns are illegitimate. I do. And I think I've come I've come to this perspective. That's the thing I hear the most, by the way, Tommy. I do. By the way, I'm out here. I live in Dallas. I, I'm from Sherman, which is an hour outside of Dallas. I hear the same things. I mean, I hear both people who still love Trump. I hear people who are 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 weary of the personality of Trump. And by the way, all of the legal troubles. But um, the thing I hear the most is. I don't want to lose a general election, and they're unconvinced that Donald Trump can win a general election. I am not as concerned about that. And let me tell you why, Tommy. In 2020, he lost for many reasons, many reasons, many, many reasons. <laughs> um, but in part, he lost because Joe Biden was a blank slate. He ran as a basement candidate. He ran as the experienced politician who was basically vanilla compared to the other Democratic primary candidates. And so by the time that he gets there, all that Joe Biden represents is the referendum on Donald Trump. Thumbs up, thumb down on Donald Trump. And that gave every swing or independent voter the ability to only vote based upon Donald Trump. Joe Biden doesn't have that luxury in 2024. He's, he will have had three and a half years of governance. He will have had a bad economy. Um, which resonates with independent and swing voters. I don't know if the border will resonate with independent swing voters. It should. It's an existential threat to the United States of America. It should. Um, but, it, you know, Joe Biden has a history now on that as well. And he has his increasing frailty, his senility, his incompetence, all laid bare for the American public. So it's no longer a referendum on Donald Trump in 2024. It's as much, if not more, a referendum on Joe Biden. So no more blank slates. So when that voter goes there and they say, I remember what my life was like under Trump and I know what my life is like now, it makes me think there is a path for Donald Trump to win a general election. And by the way, for whatever that poll's worth, the Washington Post, ABC, it seems to reflect that. It's an outlier poll. It's 10 points. Yeah. But all of them at this point have Trump at least head to head, if not one point up 
on Joe Biden. That's what concerns me, though, because things are so bad right now. And Donald Trump and Joe Biden are essentially in a dead heat in, in, the, in the polls. So for me, I get it. There's Joe Biden is horrific. But the fact that they're that close worries me. And we celebrate that like that's some kind of a, like a big accomplishment to be head to head with a man that has to use this, the kitty stairs. I, I just I don't think that it's an accomplishment. But they all are. Yeah, but they all are. But so he, is Ron DeSantis. So is every other Republican primary candidate. They're all in that same range of head to head with Joe Biden. Right. Well, I think that things would change a little, but then another curveball, you know, because you and I have been on many shows together and I've said it because I've maintained it since January. <laughs> I don't think Joe Biden is going to be their nominee. I think it's going to be Gavin Newsom. I really do. I'm still holding on to that. I, I don't see a world in which Joe Biden is actually their candidate, especially with more and more coming out. The mainstream media is having to report on it, even bombshell news yesterday. It's not looking good for him in any way, shape or form. The corruption, the age, and then just his lack of of governance and ability to run this country. So there's nothing that that is giving him a win. Uh, so I think it's going to be Gavin Newsom. So then do you think, because Gavin Newsom, obviously California is a disaster, but I fear that a Gavin Newsom versus Donald Trump general election would look much different. And I don't have a lot of confidence that the American people understand how bad California is. Can I... Um... You're right. You have been very consistent on this idea that it won't be Joe Biden. I think I've gone back and forth. I think I have um, seesawed on this. I, I'm curious. So I want to ask you before I answer your question, how do you suspect it would play out? Do you think that they'll, they've got like a month left? Gavin Newsom, for example, has like a month left to get on the primary ballot in Nevada. He's a little longer to get on the other primary ballots, but he's got to put a uh, to your point earlier, he's got to put a ground game in effect. He's got to put a real campaign <laughs> he <already> together. Is. <laughs> I would well, argue that he everywhere. already is. I would argue that he's already running. He's a everywhere, but he's got to have. <laughs> but he does have to. I mean, seriously, like I know what you mean, but he's got to have mechanics. He's got to have like people on the ground and fundraising, and he's got to have um, the media rollout, all of that. And I hear you. I mean, he's kind of running a shadow campaign on that. But do you think? I'm asking you this earnestly. Do you think that? That's what happens. It's a primary challenger to Joe Biden. Or do no. you think it goes to the convention and, and Joe Biden somehow sees the light and turns it over to Newsom or Michelle Obama or Kamala at the convention? I think it happens before that. I think they find a way to have Joe decide he's not going to run. Oh, you know, he's just wants to spend time with his family and he's getting older. They find a way for Joe to decide he's not going to run anymore. They buy Kamala out in some way, shape or form. I don't know what that looks like. That is still the part that's sticky for me. I don't know how they get rid of Kamala. I do believe she can be bought. I don't know for what price, but I do believe she can be pushed out of the way in some way, shape or form. I don't think that Gavin challenges Joe Biden. I think that Gavin Newsom is installed instead of Joe Biden. And when I say installed, I mean there's going to be a closed door meeting amongst all the people that are currently running our government because it's not Joe. And they're going to say, all right, Gavin's in. Joe has decided not to run. We bought Kamala out. Gavin's our guy. Let's go. And then Gavin goes, you know, I'm ready to step in and assume the role because the moment is is needed. And I will, you know, I will take this one for the team and I will run. And it's, he's going to be some valiant a knight with his hair gel riding in to save the day. I just see this happening. The Kamala thing is the only piece of the puzzle that I haven't figured out yet. Yeah, I, I think I I just I think that um, what is it? It's not Occam's razor. It's not Murphy's law. But, you know, what's the easiest path to maintain is the one that you are on. And 
The Democratic Party has shown that they are perfectly willing to continue to run candidates that are incapable, mentally, physically incapable. Dianne Feinstein, John Fetterman, Joe Biden. And I don't think the prospect of Joe Biden being a placeholder is scary to them. It's probably actually a feature, not a bug. The question is how he plays electorally and if they get scared that he can't win electorally. Um, I just think we're getting to that moment. We're getting to that moment where if it's going to be Gavin Newsom or someone else, they're going to have to make that move. Otherwise, we do the unprecedented historical thing of him turning it over at a convention, which, again, we just haven't seen that happen. People don't abdicate power. They just don't. That's what made George Washington so special. Um, but to your earlier question, I don't know how it plays, Tommy. I, I would like to hope America knows what's happened in California. They, they've seen the refugees fly out of California to Texas and Tennessee and Florida, and that there's no way that man could be president of the United States. I would hope it's painfully obvious, but I do know for a lot of casuals, we'll call them. Yeah, I mean, Gavin Newsom looks good. He's he He looks he has the look, I guess, of a leader of a president, and I am afraid that has some effect. As for the hypothetical matchup with Trump, I have no idea. I, I have no idea how that plays. I wonder, though, this debate with DeSantis and Gavin Newsom, which, by the way, there would be no reason for Gavin Newsom to agree to this if he weren't running. So that's just another reason that I jot down in the notebook of why I think Gavin Newsom's running. But this debate on November 30th that I've begged to be at, I mean, multiple times begged, to be at. I think this is an opportunity for DeSantis and it's an opportunity for Newsom. I think that that is going to be very telling. It feels like a soft launch to me. A lot of things have felt like a soft launch, but this feels like the actual soft launch of the Gavin Newsom campaign. I'm curious to, to know what you think is going to happen in that debate. If Ron DeSantis well, is going to perform better than he does against Republicans, against Newsom, I personally think that that's his opportunity to shine. So I think it's going to be a challenge for Ron DeSantis. I know I'm the guy that's sort of like questioning Ron DeSantis, but it's coming from a place of like, I think you should be performing better, Ron DeSantis, meaning my level of expectation, which shows some level of belief, is higher than what I have seen. Newsom can spin, Tommy. He can really spin. I saw his interview with Hannity, which I'm sure mm -hmm. you did as well. And he tells lies and you know there's lies damn lies and stats or something like that you know he can twist stats and keep talking and smoothly continue to spin in a way that by the end you don't even know what you heard right like mm -hmm. he can do a thing where at the end you're like oh my gosh i guess california was this garden of eden during covid but the end of what he had to say right and he's pulling this stat now hold on a minute sean just let me get these these, these are facts i want to share with you facts and he'll do that stuff while totally spinning and lying. And so it's going to take a real strong ability. I was going to say effort, but it's going to take some kind of ability from a DeSantis type to go, that's not true. This is what is true. Plainly, clearly. And I, the only time I've seen DeSantis pull that off to this point, Tommy, and, and it's not, I'm not minimizing it. I think it was great. It was during COVID at the podium with the mainstream media, right? And he punched back. He was a pugilist and he came off well and he pushed back on their lies. But I just haven't seen him do it yet in a one-on-one -on -one setting or a debate setting. And if he's going to do that with uh, with Newsom, he better get those counter punches and those, those, you know, those haymakers ready because this will not be, Newsom will not be a pushover. No. 
Well, I think DeSantis is going to do well because I do think that he is best when he's going against the left. Right now, he's having to navigate landmines and not pissing off Trump supporters. So he's always has to do it's like I don't yeah. feel like he's been able to fully unleash his potential because he's so worried about pissing off Trump supporters. So it's like he wants so just to be yourself. Trump. But, you know, just be real. That's yeah. all he can do. You can't yep. you can't like 3D chess this or thread that needle. Go out there. Be authentic. Be real. I think he's going to do well. Uh, last thing I have to talk to you about, though, is probably the biggest news of the week, the month. Who even knows? Maybe the year. Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. So <laughs> let's see if you and I agree on this one. I feel like this whole thing is fake. I feel like there is no chemistry there. They look so awkward together to me. I think that this is, uh, you know, Travis Kelsey is a fanboy of her. And I think that it excites her to be with a man that doesn't wear skinny jeans and, you know, isn't thinner than her. I think that she's trying that out for the first time, maybe ever. But I don't think this is a real thing. Okay, here's my take. I did this today on my show. Um, which you can go download wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, Fox News podcast. Um, I know this is a hot take, Tommy. I don't give a damn. I don't <laughs> care. I don't care about Travis Kelsey. I don't care about Taylor Swift. But here's why. I'm not being a curmudgeon. Um, I think conservatives, at some point, conservatives kind of have taken on this like thing like we have to reject every bit of pop culture, right? And mm -hmm. oh, Taylor Swift sucks. And I know Taylor Swift's out there and she said some anti-Donald Trump things or anti-Marshall Blackburn things or whatever. Look, I kind of don't care because um, an entertainer doesn't like Donald Trump. Color me shocked. Yeah. I can't believe it, you know? Um, but I'm not a fan of Taylor Swift probably because I'm I'm kind of old and and I'm into country music and, and Americana. And so like, I'm, I'm not a Swifty, but here's what I am. I'm a football fan. I'm a sports fan. Like, I love it. I always have. College football, pro football, I'm all in. It's its own form of highest art entertainment. And I don't need pop culture converging with it to make it more interesting for me. I don't need Lil Wayne. I don't need rappers. I don't need big halftime shows. I don't need anything because the games itself are so entertaining for me that I don't need casuals coming in because of the presence of Taylor Swift. That being said, I did see this morning like Kelsey's jersey spiked, I don't know, some incredible percentage. The ratings were high. Google searches out of sight. So I understand the business value because they brought in casuals. But for me, I don't care because I love football. Right. I do think, though, there are a lot of, I mean, we saw a lot of the Swifties on social media over the weekend and then this week. They are for the first time watching football, paying attention to football. So who knows? Oh, awesome. I don't know if yeah, that's, how that's that awesome plays. for. Every dude out there that's sitting on a couch and now his Swifty girlfriend or Swifty daughter is going, explain to me first and 10. Well, sweetie, you've got four downs to get 10 yards. This is this is a plague on fo true football fans. It's a plague. <laughs> I don't I, I disagree with you on that. I do like Taylor Swift. I don't like her political opinions, but I'm OK with the pop culture moment that it is. I'm OK with that. I'm happy that I don't have to hear about Harry and Meghan uh, so much anymore. So that's, yeah. to me, that's a plus. So I'm okay with a little bit of pop culture bleeding over. I, I care more about pop culture than football. So this is fine <laughs> with me, but I do Are you think, a Swifty? Are you Swifty? I do, I love Taylor Swift. I love her music. I love her, I love everything about her other than her politics. I always have been a Taylor Swift fan. I don't think this is a real relationship, but I think it's mm. interesting and 
I think she's going to have an impact. And if none other than, this is kind of a, um, obviously it's not a small town, but this is a Midwest area. And thank God they're getting a little bit of media attention. They're getting some spotlight. <laughs> Maybe it can help the local economy. I'm fine with it. I think it's fine. I don't think it's going to be long lived. But hey, if everyone can make a few bucks off of it, why not? She stimulated the economy better than any Democrat ever, to my knowledge. So I'm okay with can it. I, can I make one more point? I have no idea how long your show is or how long this interview is supposed to go. But this just occurred to me as well. I'm not anti-Taylor Swift. I can really only name one song, Shake It Off. And I probably know more. I just don't know the names of them. So if I heard them, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I've heard this song. But she does represent something I don't like. I don't like monolithic pop culture. I don't like the idea that kids in Boston, in small town Texas, in the Midwest, all the way to California, all listen to the same language or same music, speak the same language, watch the same movies, have the same accents. I don't like it. I don't like us all converging into one blah oatmeal. I like that the U.S. is different. I like regionalism. I like that I... I kind of have lost it at one time I had a different accent than somebody from Boston. And I like that. I listen to different music than somebody from Minnesota. I like that we are regional and parochial and I want it to stay that way. I want to be able to drive five, you know, 300 miles and go, wow, isn't this place interesting? I don't want to drive 300 miles and go, Oh, this place is the same as the place I left. They have a Chipotle and they listen to Taylor Swift. <laughs> So I have to get this straight. You think that Taylor Swift is single-handedly making us all just beige. She's just, just emblematic. She's the biggest of it all, right? She is the biggest monoculture celebrity. I would disagree with you on this because here's the thing about Taylor Swift. Unlike some of the other pop culture icons like the Cardi B's, even the Beyonce's, at least Taylor Swift is wholesome. So yeah. young kids can listen to her, teenagers can listen to her, adults can listen to her. It's something they can listen to, and it's not filth, and it's not violence, That's and good. it's not you know degrading women and being disgusting, and it's not the Cardi B type of what I think is low-value entertainment. So I give Taylor Swift that. She's got something that resonates with a lot of different people. So I'm going to give her Benevolent. that. I disagree with you on that. Benevolent, virtuous monoculture. I get it. It's better than malignant monoculture. <laughs> We're going to agree to disagree on that, but I have a feeling, let's just say Taylor Swift ever performs on Fox and Friends, wouldn't that be the day? Uh, I have a feeling you <laughs> would know happening. every song and you would be so excited. Oh, I would be. I would be. Yes, but I doubt she's coming on Fox and Friends. Well, you know. But she's, but she's welcome. Well, you know what? Travis Kelsey put out the invite. Maybe if you guys put out the invite, this is still doable. You're right. Shoot your shot. There you go. Well, thank you, Will. Uh, we'll all be watching Thanks, the debate Tommy. tonight. And uh, I'll see you soon in New York one of these days on some Gold okay. Fox and Friends weekend. All right. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks, Will. All right. Up next, New Yorkers. Did you know you'll be paying over $3.5 billion to care for illegal immigrant squatters in your sanctuary hellhole this year? You say you've had enough, but will you still vote Democrat? It's time for Final Thoughts. When you have an open border and an open invitation signed Sincerely Joe to invade our nation, every city becomes a border town. New Yorkers are getting just a taste of it, just a lick of the ice cream cone, and they are pissed. And rightfully so. Here are New York residents attempting to block migrant buses from being unloaded in their city. Because you know what? It's damn expensive to live in New York City. But if you're an illegal, it's an all-expense-paid vacation to the Big Apple courtesy of the American taxpayers. These illegals, they are cashing in big time. 
The city has just over 57,000 illegals in their care on any average night. That's more than the capacity of City Field and Yankee Stadium, and just under the total population of my hometown of Rapid City, South Dakota. All illegals, all eating, sleeping, crapping, and relaxing for free. Here's the math on that. It's costing New York, and more accurately, New Yorkers, nearly $10 million per night, almost $300 million a month, and nearly $3.6 billion a year. And while that might pale in comparison to how much we've sent Zelensky, it's an amount New York cannot afford. Same thing with Chicago, another sanctuary city that is really rethinking the sanctuary part of that title. While taxpayers are being taken to the cleaners, some migrant health care staffers are cashing in. Check this out. Chicago's Mayor Brandon Johnson, no Brandons can ever be trusted, by the way, but Mayor Brandon over there just inked a $29 million contract with Garda World to construct six camps across the city to house 200 to 1,400 migrants per zone. Yes, Democrat leaders are annexing your land to build housing communities for illegals where they will not only get shelter, but bedding, laundry service, and three meals a day. The city of Chicago is allocating hundreds of millions to this migrant crisis and using tax dollars plus federal funds to do it. And thanks to local reporting by NBC5 Chicago, we know that some of these glorified babysitters tasked with caring for illegals are making an absolute killing off the illegal immigration industrial complex. Invoices show some of these employees are making 135 bucks an hour and some even $200 an hour. A facility manager made 14k in a week and a nurse 20k in one week. Favorite healthcare staffing, a firm based out of Kansas, has been paid at least $56 million since last October to help care for the 13,000 migrants in Chicago, according to NBC5's investigation. The illegal immigration industrial complex, folks, there you have it. You should be pissed off, but let me guess. These pissed off folks in New York City and Chicago, they'll still vote Democrat, won't they? Sadly, I have no doubt. And that is precisely why I think border state governors ought to keep sending the illegals their way. Elections have consequences, and in this case, you get and you pay for what you vote for. Those are my final thoughts. Be sure to like and subscribe Outkick on YouTube. From Nashville, God bless and take care.